Our scripture reading today, prior to our sermon, uh, is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12 is our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage is picking up uh, where we left off last week, indeed, with just a little bit of overlap uh, from last week. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. I'm going to start reading at chapter 11, verse 14, because... Uh, this uh, passage, the previous chapter, and specifically those verses, lead right into what takes place in chapter 12. It provides the context for our passage today. So First Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 25, that's the sermon passage, but I'll begin reading at chapter 11, verse 14. But first, before we get there, we'll read our scripture reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, that this is the very word of God. And it is worthy of all of your attention. So please give over your full minds to God's word as it is being read. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now turning to 1 Samuel 12, 1 to 25. That's our sermon passage, but of course beginning at verse 14 of chapter 11. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to, all the, to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in his place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the the army of Hazor. 
and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord. And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that just as Samuel vowed to instruct his people in his day in your ways and in your word, that you by your spirit would do the same for us today. We pray that you would give us willing and attentive ears and minds. We pray, dear Lord, that we would subject ourselves to the transforming power of your spirit as he gives power to the proclamation of your good word. Help us to humbly sit under the teaching and the preaching of your word. Help us, O Lord, not to see ourselves as lords over your word, as superior to it. Help us not to see our minds as the key of interpretation. Instead, O Lord, help us to submit to you as you interpret your word for us. We pray, dear Lord, that you would bless the one who preaches your word and the ones who hear it. May we all humbly accept what you say to us, both as your word has been read to us 
as it rings about in our minds, but also, Lord, now as it, as it is about to be preached. For we pray this all for the, name, for the sake of and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And before we jump into this morning's passage, First uh, Samuel chapter 12, you probably are aware, some of you at least, that last week I mistakenly said that in this chapter, Saul would commit the sin that would result in the Lord rejecting him, the offering of an unlawful sacrifice. I had to go back and look at my notes, and yes, indeed, I did say that. It was right there in my notes. And as most of you likely know, we've just read, of course, chapter 12. That ain't in it, is it? It doesn't happen until chapter 13, so I apologize for my mistake there. But looking at chapter 12, in this chapter, Samuel continues what he began at the end of chapter 11, when all Israel had gathered at Gilgal on the western shore of the Jordan River, and the kingdom was renewed there. You remember this is after this great and marvelous victory that took place to the east of the Jordan River, when Israel came and fought against the Ammonites. And they fought, and they were victorious under the leadership of their new king. And now they travel to the southwest, they cross the Jordan River, they're right there at the spot where Israel first uh, came across the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua. And there all Israel, not just the soldiers, but all Israel gather together. Samuel has gathered them together and they renew the kingdom there. And now here in this same context, in that same gathering after the kingdom has been renewed, and, and you notice that the kingdom was renewed by the people. The people uh, and the priests offered the sacrifices. Samuel isn't really mentioned that much at the end of chapter tw- uh, 11. But here in chapter 12, Samuel takes over the proceedings. And he gives his farewell address. And in many ways, this is a similar, if more brief, version of Joshua's Choose This Day Whom You Will Serve speech at the end of Joshua chapter 24. Samuel, in this speech in chapter 12, he throws the gauntlet down before all Israel, somewhat like Joshua did. He challenges Israel to serve Yahweh and to obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Now, it's important to note here at the very beginning that Samuel isn't saying farewell to Israel as a prophet. And he isn't saying farewell to Israel because he knows he's about to die. He continues to serve as a prophet for another 30 years or so until his death as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Samuel here is saying farewell to Israel as their judge in the formal sense, but he would continue on as Israel's prophet. And in that sense, he judged them all the days of his life as 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 puts it. But his formal role as judge has ended because the king has now been enthroned. But in his role as prophet, he is going to plead the case of God's people to God himself, but he's also going to be God's voice to God's people. As we work our way through the passage today, I would ask you to consider this thought. The Lord will never forsake his people, not because of how great or wonderful, or lovable we are, but because of the honor of his own name. Again, let me say that. The Lord will never forsake his people, not because of how great, or wonderful, or lovable we are, but because of the honor of his own name. Because this passage has a a forensic or a, a judicial quality to it, I have I've divided it into three sections, and each section has a judicial uh, title. The first uh, point uh, is a judge in the dock. 
The second point is speaking from the bench. And the third point is the chief justice's promise. So again, the first point, a judge in the dock. The second, speaking from the bench. And the third, the chief justice's promise. So let's look at the first point this morning, a judge in the dock. As I've said, the, the, the proceedings of this assembly, assembly they have a, a forensic or a judicial feel to them. A judge, the last human judge of Israel, is entering into retirement in that specific capacity, and yet counterintuitively, in his first section, in this first section of chapter 12, he calls upon the people assembled at Gilgal to judge him. When has a human judge, in your experience, ever done such a thing? Samuel's speech begins with the word, Behold, which he will repeat several more times in the first three verses. The Hebrew word there is henna, and it means to look, to see with your eyes, to witness. Behold. The judge is asked to be judged, is asking to be judged, and then he calls upon the Lord to be his witness that they have found no offense in Samuel. Now Samuel starts out in verse 1 reminding the people that he obeyed their voice and placing a king over them. That doesn't mean that he did it happily. It doesn't mean that he did it willingly, very willingly, but he did it. And so they now have a king over him, over them. And this king walks among them, as he tells the people in verse 2. The people have just celebrated their king's first victory against one of their fiercest enemies. But before Saul, a name that Samuel will not even mention in this chapter... In his speech, before Saul walked among them, Samuel did, as his grown sons, whom he references in verse 2, are proof of. Samuel has been among them his whole life. And now he's an old man. He's, his, his hair is gray. Now, Samuel's sons, of course, were the occasion for which the people called for a king like the other nations. They didn't walk in Samuel's ways. They were more like Eli's two sons, who were worthless. But even though his sons were less than perfect, Samuel asks to be judged on his own behavior, not his son's behavior. And so he says in verse 3, Here I am, testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed, that is the king. Testify, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from, whom, from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Samuel here is giving them every opportunity to speak out, to publicly testify if he has done something wrong to any of them while serving as their judge. Now, those of you who are married, at least some of you in the, in the marriage service, uh, I know the OPC's uh, uh, suggested service for a wedding uh, service, it has what is known as the ban in it. Now, that doesn't mean... That, ban as we understand that word today. Nobody's being banned or banished or anything like that. But, but what it means is, it's the part in there that says, if anyone has reason to oppose this marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace. And in most wedding services, that is a mere formality. It's just something that is done for tradition's sake. But, but there, there is a, a history there to it. It was to prevent someone later on from coming out and saying they should not have gotten married. Well, you had your chance at the public service, the, the, the wedding service. And Samuel, in some ways, is doing the same thing. And certainly, this is a challenge from Samuel to the Israelite people. And yet, I believe he earnestly means what he is saying. He is earnestly giving them the opportunity to speak up or to forever hold their peace. 
He's inviting them to speak out against him if he has abused the power of his office. Now, wouldn't it be great if judges today or anyone in authority for that matter sought to be held accountable by the people they're called to serve? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And Samuel does this because he understands and and he acknowledges in this passage that there is someone with greater authority than him who is present. In fact, two someones, Yahweh and his anointed. Samuel understands that he cannot simply act with impunity. He understands that he can be punished if there is someone there who testifies against him. If the people had been living in fear of Samuel, if they had been suffering under his abuses, they now had a king over over them, a king there among them, to whom they could appeal. If Samuel had done anything wrong to them. And Samuel promises that if he has done them wrong, if he's taken anything from them, that he will pay restitution. He will make it right. Samuel here is displaying a willingness, even a predisposition, to repent if he is found to be in the wrong. So often, our stance, so often my stance when confronted with my sin is one of stiff-necked defensiveness. We are predisposed to go into damage control mode when confronted with our sin. Or we simply deflect uh, the the confrontation, the, the, the conviction. We redirect the blame. Samuel has walked with the Lord all these years, and he has a humility that can only come with close fellowship with a holy God. The people respond to Samuel in verse 4, and they say, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. They testify here to the integrity of Samuel as their judge. And Samuel responds to them in verse 5, Yahweh is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. To which the people respond, He is witness. Israel's last judge placed himself in the dock and he was found not guilty by the people that he had served for many, many years. This takes us to the second point, speaking from the bench. Samuel has given the people an opportunity to testify against him and now Samuel is going to testify to them and against them. Rather than speaking to them from the witness stand, as it were, he gives one last speech as judge from the bench. At the beginning of verse 6, he repeats repeats the phrase, Yahweh is witness. But then he takes it in a different direction than in the previous verses. Yahweh is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And this paves the way for Samuel to begin to remind God's people, or better put, the history of God's uh, faithful dealings with his people. Samuel is going to plead with them, as he says in verse 7, concerning all the righteous deeds of Yahweh that he performed for you and for your fathers. Samuel isn't going to talk about all the great things that he did for Israel. He's going to remind them of all of the great things that God had done for them. And so in verse 8, he takes them all the way back to the time of Jacob and his going to Egypt during that time of great famine. And over the hundreds of years of history that he covers in verses 8 to 12, 
from Jacob's, Jacob's sojournings in Egypt up to the present day with the threat of the Ammonites, Samuel rehearses for them how unfaithful they have been and how God has always delivered them. He highlights their unfaithfulness and sets it in contrast to God's faithfulness. In verse 9, he reminds them that, that despite God's deliverance of his people, they forgot him. But God did not forget them. God disciplined them by selling them into the hand of the king of, the, of Canaan, whose commander of his army was Sisera. They would find themselves in trouble, most often as a result of their own sin. And they would cry out to God, and God would deliver them. God sent judges. Among those judges, Jeroboam, also known as Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, among many others. And he sent these judges to lead them and to rule over them. And the government of these judges was not a form of, uh, of oppression, but, but it was a blessing to them. Time and again, God rescued Israel from the hands of their enemies, even in the recent campaign against the Ammonites. And in verse 13, Samuel says, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. Look with your eyes, he is telling them. Witness this day what the Lord has done. Now, verses 13 and 14 are at the center of our passage. Take our start as we did from chapter 11, verse 14. And they are central to what Samuel is saying. The success of the king is conditioned upon the obedience of the people of the Lord. Now, we observed this before regarding the kingship of Saul, but it bears repeating in Saul, Israel didn't get the king they wanted or the king they even needed. They got the king they deserved. Saul was the king they asked for. And he did just lead them into victory. They've got a very promising start in their king. Samuel is saying that if they are obedient to the commandment of the Lord, then everything will be well. But as verse 15 says, if they don't obey the Lord, if they rebel against God's commandment, then God's hand will be against Israel and her king. They had wanted a king because they believed that a king would bring them success in battle against their enemies. But the reality was that their obedience to God determined the success of their king. And then in verses 16 to 18, Samuel calls for a sign from the Lord to demonstrate the truth of his words. So that they can know with certainty that it was wicked of them to call for a mortal king to rule over them instead of God. He calls on God to give, them, to give the people a supernatural sign that his words are true. He points out that, th that is, it is the day of the wheat harvest, which would have been sometime in May or June after the spring rainy season was over. And he calls for God to send to them a thunderstorm. Now, for ancient people, for, for us today, we're, we're well advised to, to take thunderstorms seriously, not to, to be out in the open air when a thunderstorm begins. And Samuel is calling on the Lord to send this thunderstorm. He wants them to know and see that their wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh in asking for yourselves a king. That's what he tells them in verse 17. And God does as Samuel requests. He sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. The reminder of Israel's past sins and more importantly, God's deliverance of them result in the people saying to Samuel in verse 19, Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die, 
For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. This thunderstorm that the Lord sent was enough to make them fear for their lives. The, 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 not even hundreds of thousands of people, but millions of people that would have been gathered at Gilgal were greatly afraid. And so they beg of Samuel that he prays to the Lord. That he pray that the Lord would deliver them, that they would not die. Samuel's words to them and the thunderstorm that the Lord sent, they have hit home. Samuel has tried to show them that God has always been the one to save them from their enemies, even when their greatest enemy was themselves, and that asking for a king truly was a rejection of the Lord. And they ask Samuel to pray for them, to intercede for them, so that they might not die because of the sin that they've committed in demanding a king. Now, it is difficult when being told that you have sinned against someone to humbly accept those convicting words and not start defending yourself. But the people do accept Samuel's words. Perhaps it was because of the kicker of the thunderstorm, but they do. And here they set an example for the rest of us. This takes us to the third and final point of the sermon, the chief justice's promise. After the people respond to Samuel's convicting words in verse 19, Samuel begins to bring to a close his farewell speech as their judge. He tells them in verse 20, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. Now it's not often that we see the words, Do not be afraid, and you have done all this evil, in the same sentence, side by side, spoken by a prophet. But here they are. Spoken in the same breath. It's counterintuitive. If they have done all this evil, as Samuel has said, then they ought to be afraid. The reason that they don't need to be afraid is it won't be given until verse 22. But before he gets there, Samuel tells them in verses 20 and 21 that they are not to turn aside from God, but must serve him with all their heart. He tells them not to turn aside from God and go after empty things. He is calling on them to lovingly obey their father. It's worth noting that this word translated empty two times in verse 21 is the same word found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 where we read the word was without, was without form or empty and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Samuel uses the word empty in conjunction with the word turn aside to convey to Israel that which is the opposite of true repentance. If they turn aside and go after empty things, then they are forsaking the Lord and pursuing everything that opposes the Lord. The reason why they should not be afraid, as Samuel told them in verse 20, is found in verse 22. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. They are not to be afraid. Instead, they are to fear the Lord, as Samuel exhorts them to do in verse 24. The opposite of being afraid is the fear of the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, then you will be afraid of every little thing. Though they are prone to forsake him, though they are prone to pursue other gods, as Samuel quoted Israel confessing in times past in verse 10, we have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Though they are prone to do this, God will not forsake them. True repentance doesn't result in in, uh, in or cause God's forgiveness. 
Instead, true repentance comes about as the result of having been forgiven by God. True repentance is evidence of the fact that we have not been forsaken by God. True repentance is the product of having been saved. There is great comfort in hearing the words, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil in the same sentence, spoken in the same breath. Believers in God, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, believers today, we are quite capable of doing evil, of sinning. And we forget that sometimes. We start to think that our sins don't stink as bad as other people's. In fact, we're prone to start believing that our sins really aren't that sinful, that they're actually not sins at all. And sometimes we get to a point of being practical perfectionists, though we would never admit it. We know our, our theology, our doctrine teaches us that all men are sinful and that even Christians continue to sin. But we can start to act like we never sin. But the Lord is faithful to his own name's sake, though we are not faithful. God will not be untrue. He will not dishonor himself by being untrue to his word. God was pleased, as Samuel says in verse 22, to make you a people for himself. Notice that Samuel makes it very personal there in verse 22. He doesn't speak of it in the abstract of God making a people for himself, but making you a people for himself. Samuel, for his part, won't sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for God's people, as he tells them in verse 23. He will remain faithful in instructing them in the good and right way, even though he no longer serves them as judge. Of course he's going to pray for them as they requested that he pray for them. He's going to continue to teach them, to instruct them. But he will cease to be their judge. We've already mentioned in verse, uh, verse 24, we've already talked about it a little bit, but Samuel calls on them to fear God and to serve Him faithfully, and then he tells them to consider what great things He has done for you. The way that God's people are to cultivate a good and proper fear of God is to consider God's works of salvation for His people. Just what Samuel did earlier in verses 8 to 12. That's a good pattern for us. We're to recall, we're to rehearse the mighty works of the Lord in saving His people. Reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. Reminding ourselves of all the ways He has proven He has not forsaken His people throughout history. This will serve to encourage us in our faith. Samuel ends his speech with a warning to Israel in verse 25. If they still do wickedly, if they continue, continue on in their sin, if they make a habit of sinning with reckless abandon, then he will be, they will be swept away along with their king. But even that, as will prove to be the case in Israel's history, is intended to bring them once again to repentance. The kingdom of Israel will be split and they will be driven into exile in the not-too-distant future. But God will always preserve a remnant of those who truly believe. They will be beaten and battered, but there will always remain a true Israel. God will always gather unto himself a people for himself. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. You and I, we are not loved by God because we are lovely or lovable. 
We are loved by God because it pleased Him to make us a people for Himself. He loves us despite our unloveliness. It's a good thing that His love for you and for me is not conditioned on how lovable we are or how deserving we are of His love. Because if that were the case, he would never, we would never have been loved by Him. God's love is conditioned upon the honor of His own name. He has sworn an oath. He has made a covenant to Himself. He has sworn by His own name because there is no higher name by which He can swear. He has promised to make you a people for Himself. And that cannot change. You will suffer in this life. But if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, you will never be forsaken. Many people in this life will disappoint you. Many people in this life will do harm to you. But God will never let you down. The chief justice of the most supreme court has made you a promise. And as a result, you have been declared not guilty in his court of law. Even though you have done evil things, committing many great sins. And God has done this. Because Jesus Christ was declared guilty in your place and he suffered the punishment for your sins on the cross. God made a promise never to forsake his people. And God the Son's life and his death and his resurrection from the dead prove that God's word is true and that it can never be broken. Not by you, not by me, not by any power in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is nothing that can break the love of God for his people in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your great love for your people. We do not deserve it, we did not earn your love. And we don't go on earning your love. You set your love upon us despite our great sin and our rebellion. Despite the fact that we still sin each and every day and will do so for the rest of our lives. You love us with an everlasting love. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us great security in these days of great uncertainty. We pray that you would help us to rest in the knowledge that you love us. And the proof, the evidence of your love for us is sending your only begotten son to live for us and to die for us and to be raised again from the dead for us. We pray, dear Lord, that rather than focusing on that which is hard Rather than focusing on that which is evil, rather than focusing on that which is counter to you, that we would focus on this great truth. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Because Christ Jesus came to save. And he is saved indeed. We pray this all in his perfect and precious name. Amen.